Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. No matter how much you try to resist it, there's always a desire to feed the ravenous animal, said Neil Kinnock to me. Aggie Chambray, your new Westminster Insider host, when I asked what he thought of 24-hour TV news. And that desire, he says, can make a difference to just about everything in politics. The timing, the announcements, and the everyday conduct of MPs. Now, I'm not a politician. I've never worked in frontline politics. But I do know a thing or two about feeding that ravenous animal. I know what it feels like when a really big story hits a Westminster TV newsroom. That hit of adrenaline when all the phones start ringing off the hook, the gallery buzzes through the intercom and the nearest correspondent sprints into the studio. I know the boredom, fear and then exhilaration when you're waiting to shout questions at the Prime Minister. And I know the excitement of having to pull over on the side of a road, put up a satellite dish and get a correspondent to do a live in the middle of nowhere because a story genuinely couldn't wait to be broken. Regular listeners of this podcast will know Alva's first episode introduced you to the Westminster lobby while Jax was on staying up all night to write a morning email. And until I joined Politico last month, I was a political news editor for Sky News, and before that, I worked for Robert Peston's interview show. So, like Alva and Jack, I'm also going to start where I've just finished and show you behind the glamour of the glaring TV lights, share some of the most salacious newsroom secrets, and find out if Neil Kinnock is right. Has TV news changed politics forever? You suddenly went from being in a situation where the next deadline wasn't a morning newspaper or an evening TV news bulletin. It was the top of the next hour. It is a ravenous beast which will never be sated. There's an instantaneous and perpetual frothing. It can sound quite ridiculous, but it does feel like you will go to the ends of the earth to find and locate that person. We are partly in the entertainment business. From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambray and this week on Westminster Insider, we're going inside the world of TV news and asking just how much of our politics is shaped by the flat screen in the corner of our front rooms. Westminster's week begins, not on a Monday morning like everyone else's, but at 8.30am on a Sunday morning with Sophie Rich. Who would want to be the government minister on today's show? It continues on BBC One with Laura Koonsberg. Does the Prime Minister have the strength to get all of Brexit done? And then true junkies might even move over to GB News to watch more. Watch a show we have for you. Do not go anywhere. For genuine politicos, Sunday mornings are always spent glued to the TV. It's a ritual like going to church. But instead of a jolly parish vicar, you spend the morning with some random cabinet minister getting grilled on the issues of the day. So, running order today is James Cleverley, up first, uh, who has drawn the short straw uh, for the government this morning. That's Sophie Ridge you can hear. Before our interview, she invited me behind the scenes for her Sunday show, back in a newsroom I'd been once or twice before. I've known Sophie since I started working at Sky News. When did we first meet? (laughs) 
She has been the host of Sky's flagship Sunday show for the past six years. Or the last four Prime Ministers, as we like to measure it in Westminster these days. Frankly, there is something about Sunday morning politics. That the, it's the timing of it. it. It does help set up the week. I think it's a really different way of thinking about news, particularly coming from a 24-hour news organisation. And also, we're in the sort of Twitter news cycle as well, which is like Sky News on crack, basically. It's like not even a daily news cycle. It's a minute by minute. Um, I came from Sunday newspapers, so I think I'm perhaps a little bit more used to taking a step away from the day-to-day and thinking about the story that's going to be the next story, which is what we try and do on the Sunday show as well. Um, So it's not just like a roundup of the week. It's more about what is going to be the big story next week and trying to get your head into a bit of a different space. So you start reading the papers Saturday night, maybe Sunday morning. Do you feel like you know exactly what the story is? You read that story in the Sunday Times and you're like, that's it. That's going to define this week. I'm going to ask. That's my first question. So it really depends. My favourite interviews are the ones where I rip it all up on Sunday morning at 6 in the morning or 5.30 and just write it all again. And I actually think those can be the best interviews. And that's because there's a big news event that's happened. And you just go in, you're like, actually, you know what? There's one story in town. We need answers. Our viewers want answers. We're just going to focus on that. Do you feel like you are ever kind of playing a character when you're on air? Do you feel like you have to put armour on almost when you really go toe-to-toe with a politician? When I first kind of got the programme and you have to work out what kind of interviewer you're going to be, I was the first kind of woman to get the political programme in the same way. And I think you have to find your own voice. I'm not going to be Jeremy Paxman, right? And so I've definitely tried to just accept that I have to interview as, as I am in my own style. What I've realised is that if you ask a really rude question in a polite way, then people don't actually realise. Now, I just want to talk uh, about your own record. because I think it was Chris Grayling. Well, why do you think it is that you know, misfortune just seems it, to follow you around? Well, it's a challenging time for all of us in government. You can kind of say something quite rude, but if you say it in a way that is unaggressive, you kind of get away with it, I think. Yeah. The other question that's one of my favourites is... Um, I don't understand that. Can you just explain this to me? Or this is probably a really stupid question. And then the kind of guard comes down slightly and they often say something that is going further than they would like to go. Sorry, I I genuinely don't understand that sentence. Sophie's most high-profile moment probably came on her very first show in January 2017 in an incident which she now thinks of as Pussygate. I'll probably feel slightly awkward reading this out, but I do think it's important to rehear what Donald Trump was recorded saying in the past, which is about women. When you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. I mean, forgetting the fact that you're Prime Minister for a moment, how does that make you feel as a woman? Well, look, I think that's unacceptable. But in fact, Donald Trump himself has said that and has apologised for it. So I did come up with the idea to do it, and I I was well up for it, basically. And I would defend myself doing it as well. Um, My main problem was that the way that we had pussyfitted around the Donald Trump phrase basically let him off the hook. Because if you said, oh, he made a derogatory comment about women, how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, that, what does that mean? Um, I'm not sure number 10 saw it that way. They, I think, saw it as a gotcha, basically, which is genuinely not what it was meant to be. She also answered the question really well, I thought. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was nervous mainly because of, you know, it was my first show. Yeah. <laughs> and I was pregnant, so I was like being sick in the toilet before going on air as well. <laughs> How <laughs> was that? Um, it was okay. I mean, I, it was like the first three months, and no one even knew, so that was kind of full on. <laughs> Is that kind of a horrible feeling when people are angry with you for asking questions that you think are legitimate? I didn't ever regret it. I always felt confident in my decision making. And I also felt that I had the support of Sky. The thing that was difficult was that then uh, we didn't get any government guests for a long time after that. So they just pulled. Yeah, they pulled the guests, yeah. For how long? And months, I think. Yeah, it was quite a long time. So that was a kind of rocky ride. A rocky ride indeed. No government ministers as guests for months after your very first show. Ouch. But actually, this is something that happens. It's not an isolated incident. There have been numerous examples of broadcasters being punished for asking questions governments don't like. Under Boris Johnson's premiership, the government boycotted the Today programme and ITV's Good Morning Britain show, a decision which ultimately led to, stay with me here, Boris Johnson being filmed hiding in a fridge. Right, he's been taken inside, into the freezer. He's gone into the fridge. (laughs) 
An advisor who briefs politicians for shows like Sophie's told me they think politicians are scared of lines changing mid-interview. So sometimes, even when they don't actually make sense, they'll stick to the lines. Back to Sophie. Definitely. 100%. And I also think that what's really interesting too is you see when members of the cabinet feel, I feel like you can sense it, when they feel that they've been basically stitched up by number 10. Mm. And I think you got that quite a lot at the back end of Boris Johnson when people felt that look, they were basically made, made to go out having been told a partial truth, not being given the full information and then they become the face of like a 15-minute going over on something. But, yeah. you know, whether it's Chris Pincher allegations or Partygate and, and, or Dominic Cummings. Like, and I think there's only so many times you can ask your cabinet to do that until either people start refusing to do it or, you know, you, you've got a problem. And I, I really think that's a big part of what happened with Boris Johnson. Do you remember what cabinet ministers were put through in those excruciating final days of Boris Johnson's premiership? Your senior cabinet colleagues say that answering questions like the ones that we're about to ask you is a bit like being physically pummeled. Morning, Susanna. Uh, well, look, I... You almost feel sorry for them. You're conflating two things, Susanna. Uh, of it's course. The same person. And, 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 and... Almost. But when there are policies that are very difficult to defend, or a prime minister impossible to defend, these broadcast rounds can serve a pretty effective check on the government. So, what's it like actually doing one of them? Hello. Hello. I'm going to do a quick interview. So, let's... This is veteran politician John Whittingdale, <laughs> former culture, media and sports secretary, who's been in politics since the 80s. Politics has become, as a result of this, this 24-hour news and the proliferation of outlets. It is a ravenous beast which will never be sated. You know, they, they will go on, you know, demanding more and more. And, you know, it's very tough on whoever it is who's been put up to be the spokesman for the day. You are expected to defend the government on everything. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's for short straw, particularly if you happen to be minister of, of, of the day when something happens, which is way outside your brief, but happens overnight. But nevertheless, you're expected to be able to defend it. Um, and that is where, you know, the before you start this round, which usually takes two or three hours to do, but it sort of begins at seven o'clock in the morning, uh, number 10 will provide you with the brief covering all the issues which they think might come up. And you're expected to sort of have a line to take on everyone. But of course, you know, there's always the risk, as often happens, that you get asked about something completely different, which is just blown up, which you don't have a brief on at all and is outside your portfolio. Uh, and that is when, you know, you have to just survive on your wits. Hearing Christian Wakeford, the Berry MP, is defecting to the Labour Party. I mean, the first I've learned about this is that tweet uh, from well, Laura. That, uh, we've all, there. that's the first um, we've heard. Uh, but do you have sort of like, in your brief, is it like you have to say these, is it bullet points, you say yeah, these lines, lines to you take. just repeat? Yeah, there's lines to take. I love this, that shadow ministers and ministers are literally told what to say on all the specific stories of the day. So a former Home Office press officer taught me through how all this works. The department has to prepare reams and reams of briefing materials, and then they're also given the number 10 broadcast brief. He also said it's quite clear when you get to Millbank for the round that some ministers haven't bothered to read them at all. Here's John Whittingdale again. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I know what's going on behind the scenes, and I feel sorry listening to a minister. But you know, you you listen to a minister being questioned about something which is not their departmental responsibility at all, and they clearly have been given a line to take, and they repeat the line to take, and they then get pressed, and they don't really have anything beyond the line to take. So all they can do is just go on <laughs> repeating the line to take, which frustrates the interviewer. And the interviewer says, but you've been put on to, you know, answer for the government. But, you know, it is very difficult to have a detailed knowledge of every issue in every government department. Yeah, and also, presumably, you're sort of scared of messing up if you go off yeah. script. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you enjoy doing the morning rounds? No, I mean, it's quite, you sort of breathe a sigh of relief when, you know, <laughs> it comes to an end and you've got through it. 
There have been marvellous examples. I can remember ministers out there saying there's absolutely no need to, you know, for this person to resign. And then halfway through the interview, the, you know, the news comes through, he's just resigned. And you're left looking completely ridiculous. John Whittingdale is not the only MP who doesn't enjoy doing the morning round. One senior Tory once told me he equates the experience with going to the dentist. Now, this proliferation of outlets, as Whittingdale calls it, is the launch of several news stations like GB News and Talk TV, who all want political interviews. One Downing Street insider told me that when they came into number 10, they realised there were over 60 slots across the channels that needed to be filled on any given day. In response, they limited the morning round, and now ministers only pop up when the government has something to announce. One TV editor judged this to be smart, telling me this was the first time since the launch of 24-hour news that Downing Street had stopped feeding the beast. Others are more sceptical, pointing to the space it gives Labour and critical Tory backbenchers to get their messages across. There is a sense in which, look, making morning programmes is a pressurised thing. And there's an assumption that I think happens with a lot of journalists is like, well, why won't you put somebody up every day? And the truth is, if we're honest about this, is you do not want a government that is providing a running commentary all the time. This is Craig Oliver, the Director of Politics and Communications at Number 10 Downing Street under David Cameron. Before that, he was the editor of the BBC News at 6 and at 10 o'clock. And today, he's the host of the Desperately Seeking Wisdom podcast, of which season two is out now. Craig is a guy who's seen the intersection of politics and TV news from both sides. Do I think it's legitimate to do, you know, what are there about seven morning rounds a week, including the Sunday political programmes? Is it legitimate to say we're going to do four of them um, or five of them, not seven of them? Yes, I think that's legitimate. Do governments need to be held accountable? Do prime ministers need to be held accountable? Yes, they do. Do you have a disastrous media round or a disastrous moment that you can remember with David Cameron? There's definitely loads of things that that went wrong. And I remember um, there was a cost of living issue and Nick Ferrari on LPC asked David Cameron if he was aware how much a value loaf cost. I don't buy the value slice loaf. I've got a bread maker at home, which I, I delight in using. And I was just like sitting there going, oh, this is a nightmare. He's, gonna, he's being asked about cost of living thing and in the most middle class way, he's talking about making... Bread. A little plug for the uh, flour made in my constituency, ah. Cotswold Crunch. You get some of that, right. uh, you pop that in your bread maker, you can set the timer overnight, and so when you wake up, there's this wonderful smell wafting through your kitchen. And it, it went just completely wild. I remember afterwards, there were people equating the weight of Cotswold Crunch flour as the equivalent to gold, and that this was a sign of how ridiculously out of touch the Prime Minister was. David Cameron? Out of touch? Surely not. But there is a good reason why memorable little snippets of interviews, such as Cameron's Cotswolds Crunch, live long in the memory. You're looking for one soundbite or two soundbites that are really going to work in that piece. TV news bulletins rely on snappy soundbites to fit into succinct news packages, the very short films used to explain stories on TV. This is Rachel Bradley, the head of politics at ITV News. It's quite hard for ministers or, or shadow ministers, or politicians generally, to to operate like that because they, you know, they. It, it's not always possible to condense, you know, really complex or lengthy policies into, you know, a, whatever a twenty thirty second soundbite. If we're being generous, so I think that's hard for them. Ultimately, though, I think that, you know, we are communicators and we're in the business of communicating the news to people. So I was speaking to an insider who preps politicians for interviews and they were saying to me that they tell politicians to hit the point in every single answer because you never know what is going to be clipped. Yeah, it definitely makes for a strange interview. I mean, if we ran the whole morning round interview with some ministers, I mean, they would start with the same sentence in every answer. But that's fair enough. I mean... I think if they want to get a point across, then they know how to play the game, don't they? So, you know, we're looking for short, succinct answers that we can use that tell our viewers what's going on quickly and succinctly. But yeah, I, I, that if you listen to the whole thing back to back, it probably would sound really weird. 
a very famous, or should I say, infamous interview in which every sentence started with the same answer was this little number from Ed Miliband from 2011. These strikes are wrong at a time when negotiations are still going on. He recorded this as a pool interview. Okay, so this is when one broadcaster does the interview and shares it with the other broadcasters. Both sides should, after, after today's, today's disruption, disruption, I urge both sides to put aside, the, put aside the rest and, and sort this, kind of, and stop this kind of thing happening again. Ed Miliband obviously only expected the public to hear about 30 seconds of this. But to be fair to him, who can forget now that the, the strikes are wrong? He definitely did get his message across. I do think that politicians become skilled in first how do you survive in the ring without getting knocked out here's craig oliver again so how do you build a wall how do you block and how do you actually keep pivoting your answers to the one that you want to give and i think that quite often that makes a very very boring interview they're just nervous of it just constantly blowing up what changed from when you started i think you believe you started in 1992 in television Yes. So there had been a very fixed sort of schedule where newspapers were kind of king in the morning, you know, that they set the agenda for the day and they made a big impact. And then there was obviously broadcast news. The way I look at it is that when I started 24-hour news, it was a bit like pressing fast forward. You suddenly went from being in a situation where the next deadline wasn't a morning newspaper or an evening TV news bulletin. It was the top of the next hour. And so it just speeded everything up. And what my career in journalism and then into politics, it felt that at different points, somebody kept pressing the fast forward button. So I don't know, when you, you're on a smart TV, you press the fast forward and it goes times two and then it's times six and then times 12, times 24. It feels like there's been a progression of things which are speeding things up. And as a result of that, um, we are in a situation where there's often not very much room for consideration. How much of the Prime Minister's time is spent preparing for time in front of the camera and preparing for even smaller moments like getting into a ministerial car, out of a ministerial car? Uh, probably too much. Um, I think that what is interesting is when I joined Downing Street, I was surprised the extent to which the Prime Minister was engaged in decisions about communications. We had a conversation about it saying, look, we don't want you to be running a 24-hour news station. We want you to be running the country. And yes, you have to have a strong view in terms of the strategy and the messaging and what we're doing, but you also need to allow people to just go off and do that because otherwise it will never stop. You will constantly be dragged into questions and, and that kind of thing. In terms of the getting in and out of cars, I do remember that at conferences, for example, um, that you would have people who would walk from the Prime Minister's conference room to the theatre and he was surrounded by a certain group of people and that kind of thing was thought about and was choreographed. TV news has moved the dial for politics in so many ways. It's not just the speed at which events are covered and the speed at which politicians have to react. It's also changed the very way elections unfold. This is the Sky News Leaders' Debate. Sky News led the campaign to have the uh, first televised leaders' debates between the three contenders who were standing at the general election of the main parties. This is John Riley, the outgoing head of Sky News, and my former boss, well, former bosses, bosses, boss. Yes, a lot uh, of bosses. He's standing down after 17 years in the top job and almost 30 at Sky News. It was August, September 2009, and, and I got wind that uh, what I'll call the old broadcasters, the BBC and uh, ITV, were starting uh, negotiations with the main parties about hosting some sort of debates. And I knew very clearly that they would not include Sky News, so I thought we've got to get ahead of the game here. So we launched uh, in a very overt way, some might say brash way, a campaign on air. And to cut a long story short, we got there. If it's about the big decisions, I'm your man. If you vote Conservative, you will get a new team running the country. I think if we do things differently, we can be proud once again of the role we can play as a force for good. We had uh, three debates, each organised by 
uh, the three broadcasters, Sky, ITV, and the BBC. And if we hadn't agitated with the campaign, I'm not sure the debates would happen at all, but certainly Sky News would not have been part of that arrangement. And what difference do you think those televised debates made to politics? They made politicians have to account for their actions and their words, their policies, to the public in front of the TV cameras. But I think at the time of an election, when uh, politicians are asking the public to support their party and ultimately them, um, it's good to see politicians interact with the public under the glare of the, the TV lights. The Sky News John Riley is leaving is very different from the one he inherited. It's now not just a TV station, but a multimedia operation. Three quarters of Sky's content is now consumed on a digital platform. And as John used to say in all staff emails, adapt or die. 24 Hour News has evolved uh, since February the 3rd, 1989, when Sky News launched uh, here. And it's a little slower pace than it used to be. People watching want to understand stories, take them in, understand their relevance, understand their context. And uh, if someone reads at you very fast and then zooms on to the next thing, uh, you can sometimes get a bit bit lost in what, it, what it's all about. The way people are watching TV news is changing. And Sky News is no longer the new kid on the block, facing challenges from recent startups like GB News and Rupert Murdoch's Talk TV. And Talk TV, at least, seems to be judging their success in a new way. Presenters Piers Morgan and Tom Newton Dunn say it's no longer all about viewing figures, but impressions across social media. But does John still care how many punters are tuning in? Yes. I mean, the the, the TV news channel here generates significant revenue for, for, for Sky News. And it would be very foolish to um, ignore that indeed. That's quite a convenient argument for my friends um, at Talk TV, um, whose viewership isn't of the scale of ours. Do you view Talk TV and GB News as a competitor to Sky? No, I don't really. I, I, I don't see either of them really as news channels. They don't break news. They don't cover breaking news stories um, in the way that we do. And they don't have journalists who can break the stories like we do. Talk TV and GB News would, I suspect, protest rather loudly at this. But anyway, in recent years, there have been calls to allow more cameras into parts of our politics, including the voting lobbies in Parliament, as well as the other sort of lobby, where journalists get to ask the Prime Minister's spokesperson questions. I have very strong views on the uh, rules about parliamentary broadcasting. Um, the rules as they now stand were written uh, in the 1980s. Those rules need loosening. We need to see far more about what goes on in the House of Commons chamber. And do you think there should be cameras in the voting lobbies as well? Or is it just in central lobby? That you yeah, think? I do. I mean, if you remember when uh, it was an extraordinary night of turmoil back, I guess, in September of last year, with, uh, when Liz Truss's administration was running out of energy. Yeah. I saw members... Yep being physically manhandled into another lobby. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. The clearly kerfuffles in the, in the voting lobbies, we saw none of that. So yes, I think I would advocate uh, the uh, televising of the voting lobbies. I'm a big believer in transparency. Um, and you need to remember, politics is being done for the benefit of uh, the citizens in the country. It's not being done for the benefit of the politicians. After the break, I got to see far more of the House of Commons than you get to see on TV. Got a phone call from the producer being like, I've just seen Dominic Cummings and he's come out of a Pizza Express. Stay with us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. If we walk this way, we'll head into the chamber. Just here on the left, we've got uh, the statue of Winston Churchill. This is John Angeli, the Director of Parliamentary Broadcasting in the Houses of Parliament. You can see on his left foot that that's quite worn. That's because members have a habit of touching it on their way into the chamber. John is giving me a tour of the chamber so I can see how parliamentary broadcasting works. We've got uh, ten cameras, and if the speaker stands, whoever else is on their feet, we cut to the speaker. I'm in seven. John showed me into the Commons Television Gallery, which is basically like a TV control room. It's in here that they cut between and operate the 10 cameras inside the chamber and share the feed out to broadcasters. There's only one version made, which is why BBC and Sky News always show exactly the same PMQs. In the early days, there weren't cutaways, so you didn't get a reaction shot. But it was agreed to that, that, that there could be a change in the rules so that occasional cutaway shots of a reaction from a member who's referenced are permissible. And if a backbencher had fallen asleep yep. during a debate, y- you wouldn't cut to them? No, no. <laughs> it goes without saying that many of the most memorable political moments of recent years, of recent decades actually, have taken place right here in the House of Commons chamber. Hasta la vista, baby. In the name of God, go. He was the future once. Weak, weak, weak. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. I no longer believe it possible to resolve that conflict from within this government. That is why I have resigned. In doing so, I've done what I believe to be right for my party and my country. That last one of course, was Geoffrey Howe's eviscerating resignation speech that ultimately helped to bring down Margaret Thatcher. Chances are, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you've seen and heard this speech before. What you might not have known is just how close you were to never actually having seen it at all. Had this speech been made just a few months earlier, it never would have been broadcast. Proceedings in the House of Commons only started to be televised at all in November 1989, after fierce debates raged all through the 80s about the wisdom of such a move. One of the people who picked up the argument and ran with it at the time was... Me, Neil Kinnock. I used to be leader of the Labour Party a long time ago. The point that I used to make when in those endless debates about whether we should televise the House of Commons, was that, look, we've got the democracy, we've got the technology, it is absurd not to put them together. You were strongly in favour and you won in, I think I'm right in saying, 1989, that uh, cameras should be allowed into the House of Commons. The Commons has been televised ever since. Margaret Thatcher was against it and I think she said at the time, if we televise the House, it will only ever be a televised House. Yes, I think in the same remarks she said um, we will never see this house televised and a few hours later when the vote took place of course the reverse was the case and the cameras came in a few weeks later. So a senior Labour MP told me recently that the way he viewed the Commons as a place where he would make speeches that his team would clip up on social media. And he said he didn't view the Commons as somewhere where he could change other MPs' minds. What do you think of that? I got my reservations about his political judgment. Um, maybe 
over the years, that'll change. But if, you know, if people regard what they have to say in the comments as clickbait, then I think they're letting themselves down. Uh, there are so many ways to communicate with your constituents and seek to impress and sometimes try to convert them. Um, and because you have the massive privilege of being elected by your fellow citizens, um, you serve them in the best way that you can. You serve them. You're not serving yourself. This episode is looking at the way TV news has changed politics over the years, among other things. Do you think politics now is very different to say it was uh, when you were in charge of the Labour Party? It is, but that's mainly because of 24-7 rolling news and the way, therefore, that politics is reported and presented. There's uh, an instantaneous and perpetual um, almost excitement, certainly frothing about politics, that in more reflective times, when political reporting was in tomorrow's newspapers, uh, was not as remarkable or well-developed. So, so that, I guess, 24-hour news came after. So is that after you were in charge of the Labour Party, at least? Is that something you've you noticed changed kind of watching it? I've always been glad that uh, it wasn't a feature of political reporting and current affairs when I was leader, because I think that a degree of giddiness becomes inevitable. And no matter how much you try to resist it, there's always the desire to feed this ravenous animal called uh, 24-7 News. And that can make a difference to timing, staging of an announcements, and uh, the everyday conduct of politics. I'm not saying it's a, a bad thing. Uh, it's just there and has to be dealt with. Imagine we're still in the 80s. Um, there were some very famous moments involving you and television. Uh, there was Neil Kinnock, the movie. Oh, yeah, the party political party broadcast. Party political yeah. broadcast. Um, there were you in front of the Sheffield rally. We're all right! We're all right! There have been some very, very famous moments that were televised in a way they probably wouldn't, perhaps wouldn't have been. There was Neil ten. Kinnock falling down on the beach in Brighton. Neil Kinnock falling yes, into the sea yes. in Brighton. Yes, that one too. And not getting wet. <laughs> <laughs> the photographers were out and forced to see the new party leader, but their attentions almost had Mr Kinnock in the water. Were you not wet? It looks... No, no, no. no. no? I know from the television angle, now this is a case in point, I suppose, to describe both the supremacy and the shortcomings of televised news. Uh, I was walking along a pebble beach, a shingle beach, with my wife uh, on the morning of the day I was elected leader of the Labour Party. And we were doing it for the cameras. And my wife had brand new grey suede knee-length boots, very beautiful boots. And she was very proud of these boots, naturally. And we walked along the beach and the tide was coming in, and it splashed towards us, and she was determined not to get these grey suede boots wet. So she jumped out of the way, and in doing so, uh, bumped into me, and knocking me over. I only went down on one hand and immediately pushed myself back up, so I didn't actually hit the ground, and I was pretty fit then anyway, but, um, the television cameras caught it. Fortunately, of course, the sea wasn't coming anywhere near those damn boots. So, <laughs> but the problem was that image was shown every Sunday night before Spitting Image uh, for years. And uh, it came to characterize me and my leadership, which in a way was unfortunate. The most unfortunate thing was, of course, the fact that my children had to go to comprehensive school every Monday morning after it. 
uh, and it toughened them up. Uh, that was an unnecessary affliction, but uh, <laughs> they grew up to laugh at it. Do you think it did damage your chances? I, I didn't actually think about it. Uh, I mean, the reaction is when you see it, oh, bloody hell, why did that have to happen? But I didn't think at the time it would have any long-term effect, but I didn't know it was going to be shown every Sunday night at peak viewing. I guess it had a marginal consequence. It wasn't a difference between winning and losing, that's for certain. But do you think that TV news helped, hindered you? during your time as Labour leader? It varied. Okay. Uh, there were days on which it was very bleak, very dire, and days on which it was absolutely wonderful. I made a speech to the Labour Party conference, which people say changed the direction of politics. And you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour council, a Labour council hiring taxis, to scuttle around the city, handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. When I uh, attacked sectarians in the Labour Party and began their demolition and their ejection, and there were other occasions when um, I could justifiably feel a sense of satisfaction. So it, it's, you know, it's like every part of life. Great days and appalling days. So it is 10.50am on Wednesday morning and I'm just walking uh, to Downing Street to go in and doorstep the Prime Minister before he goes to Prime Minister's questions. Now doorstepping. For those of you who don't spend your days in TV newsrooms, this is chasing someone down to ask them questions. Originally, it was called a doorstep because you were literally waiting at someone's front door. But honestly, it can happen anywhere. In the street, through a car window, even outside a Pizza Express. That one will make more sense in a moment. While I wait for the PM, I speak to this week's pool team. And what are you here to do? Get a clip for the news bulletins, um, some pictures of the Prime Minister, hopefully some words. Don't get words very often, but always have to try. This is GB News correspondent Catherine Forster, there on behalf of all the broadcasters. She's here to shout a question at the Prime Minister. You spend ages sort of waiting, 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 and then suddenly there's this flurry of activity and it's all over in a few seconds. Oh, the door is opening. I think this is the Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak has just left Downing Street en route. Let's have a listen in. Confident your deal is enough to bring back power sharing to Northern Ireland, sir. When will MPs get a vote on your deal, Prime Minister? So he's just getting into his car. He obviously didn't answer that. It's a real collective effort and sort of each editorial representative from each broadcaster emails in their sort of priority questions. So with a shout, we would sort of come to an agreement. Someone might be feeling particularly clever that day and come up with one that we all go, yes, such and such from Sky, we want, we want to go with that one. Rachel Bradley from ITV News again. So though Rachel and I worked at rival broadcasters when I was at Sky, we communicated constantly to organise things like pool interviews and what to shout at the Prime Minister before PMQs. It's sort of contrary to what you would expect broadcasters to be doing as we're all in competition with one another. But on certain stories and on certain jobs, we band together and we share our resources so that we are able to cover off as much as we can in terms of news gathering so this week, for example, Ursula von der Leyen, Chris Heaton-Harris and Boris Johnson were all among those doorstepped by broadcasters. Now, the idea of chasing someone down the street with a camera can sound pretty distasteful, but sometimes in political news gathering, it's really the only way to get answers to the questions you need. When, you know, you really want to hear from a certain person and you think there is a real public interest to hear from them... It can sound quite ridiculous, but it does feel like you will go to the ends of the earth to find and locate that person. We were really trying to find Geoffrey Cox last year. It's all over the second job stuff. As you may recall, Geoffrey Cox, the former Attorney General, was under pressure for earning a fortune advising the government of the British Virgin Islands, and at times advising them from his office in Parliament. 
we worked out that he was doing some sort of speaking engagement in deepest darkest Dorset on a Friday night somewhere so we thought oh god let's just try and see if he turns up to this speaking engagement he might not but let's see and our camera crew bumped into him in the car park it was really wet and dreary and Jeffrey Cox is in his anorak are you guilty of Tory sleaze no of course not (laughs) Another one off the top of my head was um, we were looking uh, for Dominic Cummings around the Barnard Castle case and we found him in a Pizza Express not far from Westminster. Oh gosh, I do have sympathy, like human to human. Poor man came out after his, I don't know, his pepperoni pizza and there was our crew there. Are there rules behind doorsteps? Are there rules behind the pool? You wouldn't obviously barge into a Pizza Express and say, Dominic Cummings, you were at Barnard Castle yeah. and you shouldn't have been. Yeah, I mean... Um, it's sort of a balance, isn't it, between that individual's right to privacy and the public interest in wanting to hear from them. So although we really do desperately want to hear from them, we do operate under quite strict rules about what we think is you know, right and fair and appropriate. We always request an interview with them. But if, if, if they're not playing ball and we think there's a real public interest in trying to hear from them, then we will go and try and find them. Um, but we wouldn't barge into that Pizza Express that anybody ever asked me about it. Candidates and doorstepping, yeah, go yeah. on. This is Michael Crick, the master of doorsteps. Shouldn't you be in Gaza, Mr Blair? So much so that you don't get doorstepped by Michael Crick. You came third in a two-horse race, what went wrong? You get cricked. Mr Clegg, isn't it about time you did a proper sit-down interview? Mr Green, how are you? <laughs> are you Mr guy, Green you today or Grant No, Shams? I'm Grant today. Why wouldn't you say anything? <laughs> At Newsnight and then Channel 4, he doorstepped everyone from the King, then Prince Charles, to Boris Johnson. And actually, I remember watching Michael Crick doorstep Boris Johnson. It was 2016, in the middle of the Brexit referendum, and I don't think Boris knew what had hit him. There are a lot of people who think that doorstepping is dreadful. Um, I think it's important because it, it adds a bit of drama to coverage of politics. You know, I think we have to recognise as television journalists that we are partly uh, in the entertainment business. I mean, Richard Attenborough, when he was deputy chairman of Channel 4 News, said to my editor, you said, remember, Stuart, we're in show business. And there is an element of that, that you, um, uh, you, you know, a doorstep is, you know, it can be quite dramatic. And But also, it's interesting to use it to illustrate what is the question of the day, and to see whether politicians want to answer it or not. Um, and um, the, you know, there are times when it's overused. There are times when people ask stupid questions. Um, I mean, I sit here watching, I say, well, they're never going to answer that, or that just doesn't work, or, or the questions are too long. I put a lot of effort into thinking uh, about the key question. It's got to illustrate the story you're talking about. Um, it's got to be short. And you've got to be on your guard. There were occasions when I had a producer uh, and we would rehearse it. So I'd pretend to be uh, me and he would pretend to be the victim. The ideal thing is to get a politician walking along a pavement because they can't really get away from you then. And you've got to think ahead as to what they might say and what the follow-ups are. Of course, a lot of occasions, you know they're not going to say anything. And you're just doing it, really, to start off your package on the 6 o'clock or the 10 o'clock seven o'clock news so you started off um that answer by saying some people really hate them do you think there is kind of an ethics concern about doorstepping people well they say well you know they're not going to answer so what's the point you know you just sort of oh they say uh you're just showing off or it's you know it's about all about the reporter it's me 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 i mean these are some of the criticisms but i think that if you can if you can show uh a senior figure not answering or answering the question of the day, and sometimes they do answer, that, uh, you know, does help the construction of the film that you have to make. Um, it adds a bit of drama. It can often add a bit of fun and humour. And um, so I would I would defend them. In his book, Craig Oliver wrote about an MP constantly looking over their shoulder for fear of a Michael Crick doorstep. So what's Craig's advice on how to avoid them? The tip I would give anybody listening to this in case their doorstep is stop, say, I'm terribly sorry, it's not appropriate to do the interview here. If you contact my office, I'm very happy to answer your questions in that appropriate situation, but I'm afraid I'm not going to answer your questions now. 
thank you very much, and then walk away. Um, if you do that, you have less chance of being humiliated. Um, and the big mistake lots of people make is either stopping and getting into an argument with a journalist or just walking along and saying nothing. Just before we finish this episode, I have to declare an interest. I love TV news. It terrifies the most powerful people on the planet. It brings the most important debates of the day into the homes of every person in the country. And it has the ability to cut through the noise. And in the age of social media, there's an awful lot of noise. But the real secret of TV news, the one that no one will tell you, it can just be so unglamorous. If you work in TV news, chances are you'll spend the majority of your time sat on the floor or waiting outside somebody's house only to find out later they haven't lived there for five years or just spend hours really, really needing a wee. Like, you know, I remember like presenting an election and like not being able to go to the toilet for like seven hours when I was pregnant. Sky's Sophie Ridge again. Or the other thing is like the mic packs. I like have this whole beer in my bonnet about the mic packs. They're so hard to put on and off. If you're a man in the seat, it's really easy because you literally just clip it on your trousers and put your jacket over the top. But if you're wearing a dress, it's an actual nightmare. To be totally honest, I've started wearing Spanx because it's basically like having a tight belt that you can put your mic pack on. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us or maybe leave us a nice review. And don't forget you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Jack's episode with former number 10 director of comms, Lee Kane. My producer was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. Thanks for watching. Good, happy. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, there were some really rich guests here, weren't there? 